We are in week three of a six-week series on the Bible, most read book in history, and yet a book that is so often misunderstood. And over the past couple weeks, uh, my colleague Vince has been taking us through some core convictions that Christians have about the Bible. A couple weeks ago, he talked about what it means to call the Bible God's Word, what it means for us to say that God speaks to us through this book. And last week, he talked about how we approach the Bible as a text, particularly focused on issues of translation, issues of interpretation, and the difference between the culture of the Bible and our culture. Well, this week, week three, our series takes a turn. Now that we've talked about what the Bible is, and now that we've thought about how you approach the Bible, now we have to start talking about what the Bible actually says. And that's our task today. Today, we're asking a big question. What is the central message of the Bible? We're trying to figure out what the big picture of the Bible is. And we're also trying to figure out how we fit into that picture. And so one of the best places to start when you're thinking about this issue is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And that's where we're going to turn today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians. If it's in your pew Bible, it's on page 907. Ephesians is a good place to start because Ephesians is a big picture letter. Paul in this book is explaining God's plan for history from beginning to end. And he's wanting to help the church find its place in what God is doing in the world. And so we're going to use it to help us get a better sense of what's going on in the Bible as a whole and the message being told. And so we're going to look at three passages in Ephesians. One from chapter 1, one from chapter 2, and a passage from chapter 3. And we're going to use those as our home base, but we're going to range over the whole Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to try to get a sense of what God is telling us in this book. So that's our plan. Let's start with Ephesians. We're going to start in chapter 1. Our first passage is going to start in chapter 1, verse 3, and run through verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. I'm going to read that passage, starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now that's a deep passage of scripture. It's a complex one. You could spend a few months exploring the intricacies of that passage, but we're going to boil it down in just a few minutes to three things that I think Paul definitely wants us to know from this passage. And so three truths that Paul wants us to grasp from these few verses. The first one is pretty clear. The first truth Paul wants us to know is that God is working out a plan for all of history. This plan, Paul says, was set in motion before the foundation of the world. Now think of that image. When you build a house, the very first thing you do is lay the foundation. And what Paul is telling us here is that before God did anything, before God started his creation at all, he had a plan for it. He knew exactly what he was going to do with what he was about to make. We could put it this way. Paul's making sure that we know that this world has a purpose. God has a plan for this thing. That leads us to the second truth Paul wants us to know. Second truth of this passage. Paul wants us to know that we are part of God's plan for history. God's plan includes us. This helps explain the adoption imagery that Paul uses in this passage. God has chosen us, much like an adoptive family would choose a child. And as you know, when you are adopted into a family, you often become just like that family. You take on the characteristics and qualities of, that, of those family members, the family to which you're joining. And that's what God wants for us. God wants to adopt us as his children, and he wants us to take on his characteristics, to be like him. And that helps us understand what Paul says when he says that God chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. God wants us to be like him. He wants us to be holy like he is. He wants us to be blameless like he is. And he wants us to share in the love that he has. That's God's purpose for your life. In many ways, that could be boiled down to the very meaning of your life. That's God's intention for you, to be holy and blameless before him in love. And that leads to the third truth Paul wants us to know. Paul wants us to know in this passage that God is accomplishing his plan for history, the plan that includes us as children. He's accomplishing it through Jesus Christ. Jesus stands at the very center of God's plan for history because Jesus is the one who makes the plan happen. Specifically, Jesus is the adoption agent. He's the one who brings us into the family. And he does it, Paul says, by redeeming us through his blood. And that, of course, is a reference to the cross. Jesus sheds his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be adopted as his children. So this is a complex passage, but you you can make it pretty clear. God has a plan for history, and we become part of this plan through Jesus because he redeems us at the cross so that we can become the adopted children, the sons and daughters of God. That is the big picture plan for all of history. That is the lens through which you can see the whole of Scripture. That's pretty cool. We're going to dig in. 
We're going to focus in particularly on one verse of this uh, passage, starting at Ephesians Ephesians 1, verse 10, because I think this gives us a clue to to figure out how to range over the Bible and see the big picture more clearly. Go back to verse 10. It says, This is God's plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, that's an interesting pair of words, heaven and earth. Heaven is where God dwells. God lives in heaven. That's where he reigns. Heaven is where God's will is done. Earth is where we live. Creatures live on earth. Earth is where we reign as much as we do, and it's where we exercise our wills and have our lives. Heaven and earth. Those words should ring a bell if you've read the Bible very much because that's exactly where the Bible starts. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the image the Bible starts with. It's the image Paul is definitely referring to in Ephesians 1.10. He's drawing a connection. Well, you know Genesis 1. If you've read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, if you keep on reading in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you see that God creates all things. And one of the things he creates, or the pair of things he creates, are human beings. And they have names, Adam and Eve. And as the story goes, it's clear that God has a purpose for Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it's clear from how he relates to them in Eden that God has a plan for Eden. Eden is the place where he relates to Adam and Eve. Eden is the place where God wants to bring heaven, where he dwells, where he reigns, together with earth, where we dwell, where we reign, bring them together into one. Eden is meant to be the meeting place of heaven and earth. You see? This is the connection. And this was God's intention. He wants to be with us. He wants to relate to us. He wants us to be holy and blameless before him in love. And so he wants to merge where he is, where with we are, the place we are, and put them together so that we can live in relationship with him as his children. That's his plan. But if you keep reading after Genesis 2, you get to Genesis 3 and things fall apart. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey God's commandments by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree that God commanded them not to eat. And that is the fall. It's their fall into sin. Now, we, when we look at this story for the first time, we think, what's the big deal about eating some fruit? But what Adam and Eve do, are doing here is something actually pretty major. God had told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they chose to do so, what were they trying to do? They weren't just disobeying a command. They were, in many ways, declaring independence from God. They were telling God that they wanted to decide for themselves what was good and evil. That they wanted to determine what was right and wrong for their lives independently of his judgment. And so what they're really doing when Adam and Eve eat of this fruit is Adam and Eve are calling God's purpose into question. They're raising doubts about his plan. They're rejecting what he has intended for them. And this breaks their relationship with God. And so after the fall, by the end of chapter 3, by verse 23 or so, you see Adam and Eve cast out of the garden by God. They are no longer holy and blameless. And so a God who is holy and blameless separates himself from them. And eventually this separation, as God tells them, will mean their death. 
they will die because they're no longer connected to an eternal God. Apart from this relationship with God, they will be left on their own devices. And apart from God, they will die. This is the story of the fall. And in many ways, this is the story of the breaking apart of heaven and earth. The fall is the destruction or the unraveling of God's plan that heaven and earth would be merged. It's the breaking apart where heaven and earth is divided. Now we're on our own terms. And when you have human beings living on their own terms, you get utter chaos. And as you continue reading in the Bible, Genesis 4, you see Cain killing Abel, brother killing brother. By Genesis 6, you're seeing Noah and the flood. Human beings are in a desperate situation, utterly rebellious against God. By Genesis 12, you get a really interesting story. You have a bunch of human beings trying to build a tower up into heaven, the Tower of Babel. They're trying to merge heaven and earth on their own terms rather than God's terms. And so what does God do? He breaks their tower and scatters them into different nations with different languages. It's the Tower of Babel. That's where we get the word. And you get these stories and you wonder, what's going on? Well, it's the author's wanting us to know that all of these stories are communicating something true about our lives as well. You see, the early parts of the Bible are not only telling the stories of these people who lived in the past, they're also telling our story. Because we do the same thing. God wants to live in a relationship with us. God wants to be with us. He wants us to be holy and blameless before him in love. But all too often, we choose to go our own way. We choose to live life on our own terms. And so our relationship with God is broken, and we are headed for death, and ultimately, hell. And the consequences of that are all around us. Just have to read your newspaper or look around. The good news is the book doesn't stop there. If you read on in Genesis 12, you see that God does not let human beings have the last word. He chooses to save them from death and from hell. And that story starts with the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. One of the great passages in the Bible. Abram, as he's called initially and later changed into Abraham, is asked to go to a land that God will show him. And God makes a promise for him. And the promise is this. He says in, in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's calling of Abraham is the beginning of the story of the people of Israel. God's plan for Abraham's descendants, who are the the people who are going to make up the nation of Israel, God's plan is that they would be the means by which he would bring his salvation to the world after the fall. And here's what God wants Israel to do. God wants the people of Israel to represent him to the nations. He wants them to be his ambassadors. He wants them to be the people who show other people what it looks like for human beings to live holy and blameless before God and share in his love. That's his intention for this nation and for this people. And he confirms this plan with them. He makes it real and makes it um, concrete by making a covenant with Israel. And a covenant is like a contract. It's a binding obligation between two parties, and both parties have something they have to do. And so here's the covenant God makes with Israel. You see it um, kind of most succinctly in Exodus 19. He says to Israel, he says this, If you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples, out of all the nations. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, 
but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And so the covenant that God makes with Israel is this. If they agree to obey him, he will give them special protection. He will keep them around, keep them intact. And in turn, they will serve as a priestly kingdom, as a holy nation. And these are powerful images. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people. And that's what Israel's doing. They're going to be priests to the other nations. They're going to represent God to the people. And they're going to be a holy people, set apart. God wants them to show the world what it looks like to live in a relationship with him, to live blameless, to live holy lives, to share in his love, and and to manifest that love in mercy and justice and loving their neighbor. God doesn't just leave them alone, though. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to be blameless. He wants them to represent him to the world, so he gives them instructions. And this is why he gives them the law. And so all those laws we read through the first few books of the Bible where God is giving command after command after command, that's their function. His intention is that these would be the instructions that Israel would use to show how they would live a holy and blameless life before God so that they could then represent God to the world. That was his intention. And eventually, if you keep reading on, You get kings and you get other people and eventually there's a great symbol of this covenant for Israel and that is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem becomes the great symbol and sign of God's covenant with Israel. Now the temple was built first by King Solomon and we know exactly where it was in Jerusalem. If you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, you know that golden dome right in the middle of the city? That's uh, Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque now. But that's the site of the temple. You always build your your, your religion's temple over the other religion's temple to show that your God won. And so that's why there's a mosque over where the Jewish temple used to be. We know exactly where it was. And it was a splendorous building. And here's what temples were thought to do in the ancient world. In the ancient world, temples were thought to be the dwelling places for God. You see this in Israel. They talk about God dwelling in his temple. That's why there's a holy of holies in the temple. That's why you put the ark there. Psalm 11.4, for example, says the Lord is in his holy temple. The temple is where God lives. And so in many ways, according to God's plan, the temple is the place now where heaven and earth meet. The temple in Jerusalem becomes the place where God's reign, God's will, merges together with the human reign and the human will. This is a reflection of God's original intention. This is God's plan. And so as Israel dwells with God there, they find God there. They worship God there. They find forgiveness for their sins when they break the law there. And this becomes the great symbol of their mission. Their temple is God leading them out into the world. This is the vision God has for Israel. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know how that story goes. Israel repeatedly breaks its covenant with God. Again and again and again, the people of Israel sin against God. And that's why you get these long books from the prophets. And what are they doing? They're complaining about Israel's unfaithfulness, and they're calling Israel to account. They want Israel to know that they are not keeping their end of the covenant. They are not obeying God's law. In fact, instead of representing God to the nations, they are worshiping the gods of the nations, the idols. They're doing everything exactly backwards. And so eventually, God starts to call them out and call their relationship with him into question. 
You see this all throughout the prophetic books, but there's a good passage in Jeremiah 9. He says, They have forsaken my law that I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice or walked in accordance with it, but they have stubbornly followed their own hearts. Now, you're seeing a pattern here in the Old Testament. Just like in Eden, just like with Adam and Eve, Israel has been commanded to follow God. They've been given instructions to to follow God so that they might be holy and blameless and relate to him as his children. And what do they do? They decide to go their own way. They break God's commandment. They try to live life on their own terms. And once again, this is the same thing we do. When we read the Old Testament, we're not just reading a story about Israel. We're reading a story about us. They are living out the one human story, the story of human beings who've been called to live holy and blameless lives, but who fail again and again and again. This is our story. And so in Israel's case, God responds by punishing them. And that's what he does. He allows other nations to invade Israel and eventually destroy the temple. This is the judgment of Israel. And once again, heaven and earth are separated and broken. But once again, if you keep reading, you see that God doesn't give up on his people. Instead, he makes some promises, and these promises run all throughout the prophetic books. Right alongside the judgment comes the promise, and you see it in several places, but one of the great passages is Jeremiah 31, where God says that he's going to make a new covenant. And he says this, at this time, instead of giving the people a law, he's going to give them the law in a different way. And he says this, I am going to write their, write, put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. God's not just going to give us instructions. He's going to put the instructions inside of us. And in Ezekiel 36, he explains how he's going to do that. In the great passage, he says he's going to cleanse us from our sins and our idolatry. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you, and I will make you follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. And so God's promise is this. He's going to do two things. He's going to cleanse us from our sin and from our our unrighteousness. And then he's going to cleanse our hearts by remaking them by putting his own spirit within us so that we can actually obey God in the way that the the ones who went before us could not. This is the promise that God leaves Israel at the end of the Old Testament. And this is the promise that takes us right into the New Testament because this is exactly what we see God doing through his son and his spirit. He sends his son Jesus to die on the cross for us to redeem us from our sins, to cleanse us from our sins. And he sends his spirit to dwell inside of us so that we might live lives of obedience to God in ways we never could have before. This two-part story is exactly how Paul summarizes the story of the Christian faith and the story of God's mission in the New Testament in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, one of the great passages in the Bible. If you have your Bible, you might flip over there. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, when God is preparing and and got to this point in his plan, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. 
This is Paul's summary of how God has fulfilled his Old Testament promises. God has adopted us as his children, and he did it by redeeming us through his Son and by fulfilling us and filling us with his Holy Spirit. We are, in Christ, holy and blameless. And we can actually live this way and share in God's love and participate in what he wants us to do in the world because he has changed us. He has given us his own spirit who changes our hearts and dwells inside of us. This is the story that Scripture is telling from Old Testament to New. That's how it fits. And that helps us understand what we're reading when we get to the New Testament. When you see Jesus show up, what does he start preaching? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's the first thing he says in Mark 1. What's he saying? Here comes the reign of God. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Believe the good news. God's dwelling place has come to earth again. And you won't find it in a temple. You'll find it in me. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is God in the flesh. And this helps us make sense of why he has to die on the cross for us. Sometimes people wonder, why did he have to do that? Well, now we know. It makes sense. We are sinners. We need to be cleansed. And only God can do that. So what does God do? He comes as a human being so that he can take the punishment in our place, the punishment of death. He took the consequences of sin on the cross and was raised from the dead so that in him we might be holy and blameless before God. That's exactly how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul gives us a fuller summary in our second great passage from Ephesians. So go back to Ephesians. Let's open up our Bible again. Ephesians 2, this time starting in verse 1. The first part of this passage is telling the story that we've recounted of the sin and the fall. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. This is basically the story we've been telling. Human beings, all of us, every single one of us, we have turned our backs on God. We have turned our own way, and we all deserve God's wrath, God's punishment, death, and ultimately hell. But the story doesn't stop. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast." This is the story of our salvation. This is the story of the good news. This is the gospel. Instead of being children of God, we were children of wrath. We decided to go our own way. We were headed for hell. But God sent his son to take our death in our place, to take the punishment we deserved on the cross. And he didn't do this because we earned it. He did it because he loved us. And the only response we can have to that is faith in him. And to have faith in Jesus is to trust in Jesus. 
to say that he really was the one that God said he was, that he really is Lord, and that God really raised him from the dead. That's the most basic Christian confession. That's what it means to have faith. And that's how we're saved. But the story of our salvation doesn't end there. It keeps going. And that's the good news too. Look at how Paul ends his passage in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And here's what Paul's getting at in this passage. He's telling us that God doesn't just save us and leave it at that. He doesn't just save us so we can wait around and wait for heaven when we die. He wants to put us to work. He saves us for a purpose. He's got a mission for us. And this is why he gives us the Holy Spirit. God puts the Spirit in us to change our hearts so that we can actually live in holiness and live blameless lives before him in love. And we don't do this on our own. We never have the Spirit or live in the Spirit as individuals. We always do it in the church. The church are the people of God. The church are the people of the Spirit. In other ways, in our terms, the church is the place now where heaven and earth meet, which is exactly why Peter, in 1 Peter 2, uses language that God used for Israel for the church. He says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the exact same words that were used before. And it's why Paul in 1 Corinthians, he often calls us the body of Christ. Or he says, don't you all know, church, that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Look at those, those languages, Israel, temple, Christ. The church is where heaven and earth meet now. We are the place where God dwells. We are the place where human beings live in relationship with God as the children of God. And this leads us straight into our third passage from Ephesians. Chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, running through verse 12. Another beautiful passage. Paul is talking about the gospel, and he says, Of this gospel I I have become a servant according to the gifts of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. That's a rich passage, but look right in the middle of it, right at verse 10. God's plan is to reveal his wisdom, which is the working out of his plan to adopt us as his children through Jesus. God's plan is to reveal this wisdom through the church. This is why the church exists. This is why the church is what it is. We are called to be the people through whom God reveals his plan to the world. We are God's representatives. We are his ambassadors. We are the people who, because of Christ and the Spirit, tell the world around us about Christ through the Spirit. This is why we exist. The church's job and the church's mission is to share the good news about Jesus. That's the purpose for God's community. We are God's representatives to the world. And we go about this mission, as Paul says, as people in hope 
who have hope no matter how bleak the world gets because we know what's coming. Paul in Philippians 3.20 says that the church has its, its members have their citizenship in heaven. That's a, that's a loaded image for us. Citizenship in heaven. We know where we're going. And we belong there. And we know we belong there because we know how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with an image. Revelation 21 into 22. It's an image of heaven and earth together again. The Bible begins with heaven and earth. It ends with heaven and earth. And right in the middle is Jesus, the one who unites heaven and earth. See how it fits. This is the story. And we're headed towards the end. And we know that God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And in that place, he will dwell with us once again. That's our future. He will dwell with mortals. And he will wipe away every tear. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And you'll see Jesus there. And he will say, see I am making all things new. That's Revelation 21. This is where we're headed. We are people who go about a mission knowing where that mission is going to end. We are headed to the new heavens, new earth. We are going to be people of God, holy and blameless before God in love because of Jesus and his spirit. From Adam to the end, that's the story of the Bible. And it's a story that is uh, definitive of history. A story that helps us understand and helps us realize how our lives fit in to what God is doing in the world. And it's a story so big that in many ways our brains cannot hold it. Anytime you're talking about God, you can understand him, but you can never comprehend him. And so we're dealing with a story that might make our brains feel full and your brain might be feeling like it might explode here in a minute. And that's okay. You can boil this whole thing down to one sentence. Here's the story of the Bible. God does not want to spend eternity without us. He loves us. He made us. And even though we sinned, He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He sent us his spirit so that we might live in obedience to him. And he is preparing a place for us so that we might dwell with him forever. This is the story of scripture.